Hey, Startup listeners, it's Lisa Chow here. And today I'm joined by the CEO of Gimlet Media, the company that makes this podcast, and my occasional co-host. Hi, Alex. Hey, Lisa. Alex Bloomberg is here in the studio with me to talk about two things. Mm -hmm. One relates to startup. It's a very exciting announcement that we have based on some feedback that we got from listeners earlier this year. Yeah. And two, we're going to give you a taste of something brand new from Gimlet. So stick around for a preview of that. Are we going to tell the people what the announcement is? Or are we going to just, like, uh, let the tension mount? Well, that's, yeah, that's what I was debating. Let's let the tension mount. Okay, okay, okay. So, so we've experimented a lot on Startup. I think most of our listeners will know that, that the podcast has felt really different at times. You know, like, yeah. there are moments where we have focused on one company over the course of a season, Dating Ring and Dove Charney. And there have been other seasons where we did a lot of companies uh, in a season. But I think, you know, in my mind, startup has always been about, like, what season one, what was so special about season one was, like, the intimacy you felt with the founder, the founder being you, Alex Bloomberg, and and just, like, feeling like you were on this journey mm-hmm. with this person. Right. So to be clear, like, that was a perfect sort of set of circumstances that will never again be recreated unless you decide to quit your job and start your own company and document the whole thing or unless I decided to quit this job and start another company. It's never going to happen again. There is never going to be that perfect confluence of, like, a person whose job it is to be a radio reporter documenting themselves doing this thing. Like, that just won't happen. And so I don't think it's a useful model for going forward. And I think that's always the way it is. You know, when I think about Planet Money, which was the, the podcast that, I started with Adam Davidson before Gimlet. Um, Planet Money came out of an episode of This American Life we did called The Giant Pool of Money. Like, Planet Money grew to be an entirely different thing than The Giant Pool of Money. The Giant Pool of Money was this hour-long documentary that sort of, like, went deep inside and, like, talked to all these different voices. And Planet Money became something completely different. The audience is, like, I don't know, quadruple, decktuple now what it was when we started, you know, is very, very much like a thing that people love. And it it bears less and less resemblance to the thing that it started as. And that is great. That's progress and evolution. And I and I feel like that is what we should be embracing here too. Yeah. So that's why we experimented a bunch. We knew we could never do season one again, which was tell a story first person with a very experienced radio producer at the center of that story. But there are a lot of things we can do with the show, which is why we wanted to hear from our listeners. Right. So Molly, the show's senior producer, and I worked on a survey, five Uh questions. Um, Very simple survey. We tweeted it out. We sent it out in our newsletter. And more than 2,000 people responded to the survey. (laughs) That's crazy. It was almost 2,500 people (gasps) responded. That's amazing. So in the survey, we were trying to understand... Are listeners more drawn to seasons where we cover a lot of companies or are listeners more drawn to seasons where we cover one company? Right. And we kind of document that one company through its ups and downs. Right. And overwhelmingly, listeners preferred the serialized storytelling. 80% uh-huh. of listeners preferred uh, the one company approach. And so... Um, wow. Yeah. That's really... It's rare that you get that sort of like that that level of like certitude. Yeah. That seems pretty unequivocal then. Yeah. Yeah. So, dun da 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 this is the <laughs> announcement. <laughs> so, the announcement is Startup is going back to serialized production next spring. Our listeners have voted. And so, starting in the spring, 
We will be covering one company over the course of 10 episodes, and then we will release a season in the spring and a season in the fall, and that will be our plan indefinitely. And for people who love Alex Bloomberg, Alex will be coming on the show from time to time with special bonus episodes between the spring and fall seasons. He'll be answering your questions and giving you updates on what's happening here at Gimlet. Yeah. And I'm I'm excited about that because I feel like I continue to be um, sort of amazed and surprised by all the strange shit that happens when you start a company. And it's going to be... Any examples? Yeah. Well, so we're like at 85 people now. But we're coming to the point where we have to hire now a boss. We need to hire somebody who can run like a division or something, you know, like uh, essentially. Right. Um, and that's just weird. It's weird to like bring somebody from the outside who is now going to be a, a big chunk of the company's boss. Right, right, you know? right. Okay, so so you'll be talking about these kind of the, these right. weird feelings you're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. And you will be reporting on one company. What's the company? We don't know yet. <laughs> That's the big announcement there. Um, so so we are looking for, specifically for the spring, we are looking for a company or a person that's based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. If any of our listeners know a company that they love or a founder that they love who's gone through some really interesting, trying, exciting exhausting times, um, reach out to us. Uh, you can email us at startup at gimletmedia.com and put season seven in the subject line. All right. Yeah. So it's time for our second announcement, right? Right, right. Let's do it. We're excited to share a brand new podcast here at Gimlet. It just launched this summer and it's called The Nod. It's hosted by Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings. And it's this super exuberant celebration of black culture and black life. Brittany, some listeners may remember, was the host of Sampler. And we're going to play you an episode called Chitlins at Bergdorf's. It's this epic story about fashion and the 70s and a showdown between American and French designers called the Battle of Versailles. It's really a lot of fun. So go ahead, listen, check it out. And of course, subscribe to The Nod in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Here it is. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I am Brittany Luce. And I'm Eric Eddings. So, Eric, if I tell you to name some famous fashion designers, like, like what names come to mind? Ralph Lauren. I mean, Uniqlo. Uniqlo is a store, not a person. (laughs) Zara is also a store, not a person. Uh, No, like 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 Gucci. Yeah. Gucci is a fashion designer. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent or or, or YSL. Yeah. Um, True religion. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also a company and not not a person. (laughs) Um, Okay. Okay. Uh, Marc Jacobs. Yes. 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 So I know. I know things. You got it. You cool. got it. So, um, you know what this show is about, like, like the the uh, like the nod. Yes, I, I know. I'm I'm familiar. Right. So, what is something that you noticed that all of the people that you just named had in common that may be at odds with the premise for the show? <laughs> they are 
not black. <laughs> I can say that point. definitively. Yes, 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 yes. Most of the big designers, people who are, you know, showing at Fashion Week and whose clothes are going to be in your fancy department stores and whatnot, most of those people are, in fact, white. Except for Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Fashion used to not always be like that, though. Really? I'm, I don't know when this was. Actually, in, in, the, early, in the early 1970s, things were, things were a little different. It was very diverse, and there were a lot of us designers at the time, and it was very open. You didn't feel discriminated against or anything. So that's a fashion designer by the name of Stephen Burroughs. Can you describe the scene for me a little bit? Like, what was it like to be in that world back then? (laughs) Work all day and party all night. (laughs) We all ran around together. Mm -hmm. Um... They would come to my house and steal all my clothes, and we would all go out at the same time and create quite a scene. So you guys were like a squad. You guys were like a super group. (laughs) Yeah. Each designer had that kind of group around them. They had someone who was the DJ, someone who was the plant guy. You said the plant? You said somebody who was the DJ, somebody who was the what? The plant guy, the florist. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> wait, so wait, why would you, how, what is, you'd have flowers like in the studio? Everyone was into plants and flowers. Oh, and I got you, I got you. Lord, I'm slow. And when Steven and his squad went out partying, like they were easy to spot. I mean, these clothes were loud. Turquoise, hot pink, yellow, green, red, purple, all in the same outfit. So Stephen's clothes were perfect for like, you know, like 1970s disco nightclub. And his aesthetic was like really popular at that time. I mean, actually, you know, the entire New York fashion scene had a lot of black influence. Like, let me give you a picture of just how diverse the scene was back then. Are you familiar with Bergdorf Goodman, like the the fancy New York department store? Uh, in name only. <laughs> I have never been inside. But I have heard that name and I passed it. So yes. yes, I know that. So would you categorize Bergdorf Goodman as being like well known for its clothes made by black people? I I would not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to be, yes, yes, I would n- no, well, not yes. at all. <laughs> well, I talked to this fashion critic, Robin Gavon, and she told me about this fashion show in 1969 that Stephen and a bunch of other people from the fashion industry were at. And it was called Basic Black at Bergdorf's. You had all these socialites showing up, and there was this jazz band where the members were dressed in dashikis, and <laughs> they served chitlins and collard greens. Wait, they served chitlins at, at Bergdorf's? Yes, they did. My hand to God, and that just delighted me to no end because it was just so strange and... <laughs> I'm just kooky. I'm trying to picture something like that happening now, and I just, it's not coming together. <laughs> it's not coming together for me. You know, it was it was a fascinating little blip. That that sounds way more lit than I thought it was going to be. I don't know <laughs> what I was expecting in that moment, but I was not expecting dashikis and chitlins. I don't know. This is, you know, you've never been to Bergdorf, so they could still be doing this now. It's possible. I mean, clearly I'm at the wrong spot. TJ Maxx has failed me in this moment. <laughs> Okay, so, I mean, like, that's all pretty wild, right? 
Like, New York had this, like, popping Black fashion scene with these, like, really amazing designers like Steven. And they were putting on shows with chitlins at Bergdorf Goodman. And that's what I want to tell you about. Like, this incredible moment when Black people were, like, actually, like, an influential, important part of fashion. And how, at the peak of that time, they actually helped put American fashion on the map, but, like, worldwide. It all happened on one night in 1973, and it was called the Battle of Versailles. Okay, so in order for me to tell you this story, you first have to understand a little bit of where exactly the American designers were on the fashion food chain, like, internationally. Okay. So the French designers, like, they ruled the whole fashion world, and they took their fashion shows, like, very seriously. So, like, usually a show is totally silent. The models would come out, you know, very little expression, very stiff, and they would hold the number that would represent their outfit while they were walking up and down the runway. So it's not like America's Next Top Model. It's not like All America's right. Next Top Model. Because that's good. Yeah, no, so, like, you know, the Americans were kind of, like, new to the whole fashion industry in the 1970s, whereas the French, you know, they had a long history of dominating the fashion world. So you're familiar with the Palace of Versailles in France? Um, You've heard of it, maybe? I've heard of it. It's where, like, French royalty lived, like, way, way back. Like Marie Antoinette. Let them eat cake. Right, exactly. She was living in the Palace of Versailles. She was, like, a huge trendsetter. She was, like, in a way, the Rihanna of her time. Mm. And so, like, you know, as a result of her being who she was, Versailles kind of became, like, the epicenter of French fashion. Okay, so, like, now, like, the, the Palace of Versailles is, like, you know, one of France's, like, most popular tourist attractions. But in, like, the 70s, like, it was, like, long overdue for some major repairs. Like, it was just jacked up. And so the French were trying to raise money for this huge restoration project. And so when the Americans heard about this, they were like, mm, this is our big opportunity. Like, what if we organized a benefit? You know, we get the American designers and the French designers to come together and put on a fashion show at the Palace of Versailles. The French people can raise their little money, mm -hmm. and the American people can finally level up. Get some shine. Exactly, get yeah. some shine. So the Americans brought up the idea to the French, and the French were, like, totally down. Here's our fashion expert again, Robin Gibbon. They did not particularly see it as any kind of competition mm -hmm. because they didn't see the American designers as being competition mm. for them. So they weren't even on their radar, basically. Yeah, I mean, it would be a little bit like Serena Williams doing a charity tennis match against, you know, the top player from the local college. Mm. It, it's this idea of, oh, great, you know, we'll raise some money, it'll be entertaining, but really, I'm going to win this match. It's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so each side was told to pick five designers. And Team France, I mean, they assembled an all-star team. They had Hubert de Givenchy, Emmanuel Ungaro, Pierre Cardin, Christian Dior, and Yves Saint Laurent. 
Uh, even if you think you've never heard some of these names before, I mean, like, go back and just listen to, like, every Lil' Kim song ever recorded. Like, three of five of those names are going to come up. But the Americans had nothing close to that kind of star power. See, like, for a really long time, America didn't really have any original, like, clothing designers. Basically, they would just, like, copy whatever came down the Paris runways and then bring that, like, bring those designs back and put them into American department stores. But then, like, starting in, like, the 60s, American fashion got, like, a lot more legit. Designers like Steven came on the scene and they started making like really interesting original designs like, you know, club clothes. His clothes didn't really offer a woman a lot of help, if you if you know what I mean. You know, there are a lot <laughs> yeah. of clothes that, you know, you put them on and maybe they help suck you in a little bit to make you feel a little bit more toned. Steven's clothes didn't do that. I mean, they sort of slithered over your body and revealed it. But still, even with all of these hip designers like Steven coming on the scene, the Americans couldn't really, like, shake their reputation as copycats. So they saw this show at the Palace of Versailles as, like, their chance to kind of, like, prove to the world, like, hey, we know what we're doing. We deserve to be here. So the Americans decided to put together a little dream team of their own. You know, and some of these designers are pretty famous now, but back then they were like really fresh to like the fashion world. They had Halston, Oscar de la Renta, Bill Blass, Ann Klein, and of course, Stephen Burroughs. Here's Robin again. You know, I mean, he was the hot, uh, buzzy, young designer, and he wasn't inspired by French fashion. He had no hang-ups about having to prove himself in comparison to French designers. It kind of sounds like Space Jam. Am I? Like... No, I mean no. It's kind of like the, the the Americans are kind of like the Looney Tunes. Like, yeah, like maybe the underdogs. This guy from Jersey is 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 Michael Jordan. He's Michael Jordan case. exactly. And then the French people are the monsters. I wasn't too up on who all the French were, so I only really knew about Saint Laurent. Yves Saint Laurent. See, Yves Saint Laurent didn't follow the rules of French fashion, which was appealing to Stephen. Stephen didn't care about French designers or society life or anything like that. He got the inspiration for his clothes from, like, his life, just being a young guy in New York City. And he was really inspired by all the Black models that were working in the industry back then. Black girls were dominant in New York at the time. Mm. They just were more exciting, more museful, I'd have to say museful. One of Stephen's muses was a woman named Beth Ann Hardison. What was the role of the model in fashion in the 70s? The fashion model, especially the runway model, she was queen. I mean, she was the one who basically, you know, helped deliver what was being seen by the world. What was it like to be a black model during that time? It was good in a sense because it was all... Everything was happening. Everything was creative. Everything was wonderful at the time. So things could just happen naturally. And remember, we just came off the, you know, civil rights movement, too, with Black is Beautiful. That whole theme happened. So it was, it was to a point that you didn't think about, oh, that's a Black girl. 
Bethann was Stephen's house model and one of his assistants. And I mean, I guess to give you like a picture of what she looks like, like she was skinny. She had like this deep brown skin. She had these huge like brown doe eyes and she had um, like really closely cropped hair, like a tiny little afro. It was so pretty. And, you know, before she became a model, like Bethann is just a girl from Brooklyn. Like, she used to, like, street fight when she was a kid. Where? <laughs> <laughs> no, she was, like, she was, like, 9, 10, 11. Like, like, she used to get into street fights. But she also put a lot of energy into dance when she was a kid. And she knew how to serve a look. I was well known to be really a, a, a good entertaining model. Mm. And I always knew about the stage and how to, you know, win a crowd, you know? Because mm-hmm. as a child, I was a child tap dancer. And once I hit the the runway, that became like home to me. So the way Beth Ann explains it, like black girls kind of brought something special to the runway. Like when a black girl was modeling, she wasn't just like coming down the runway like some sort of mannequin. Like when a black girl was coming down the runway, those clothes were hers. So when it came down to us on that runway, the white girl had to work, work twice as hard as her black <laughs> counterpart because the black girl, that was like freedom for her to be up on her stage. So the Americans picked 36 models to join them at Versailles. Ten of them were black, including Beth Ann. And, you know, now that they had their models, their dream team was ready to go. So they start preparing for the show. You know, they're renewing passports and choosing outfits. And, you know, and they're getting excited. Like, the anticipation of the whole night is building. And right before they're supposed to leave, they find out that Women's Wear Daily which Eric is is like basically like the Bible of fashion. So Women's Wear Daily, they've been writing these previews of the show, and they kind of started playing up this rivalry between the French and the Americans. They started saying, it's the Battle of Versailles. <laughs> <laughs> it went from a nice little church meeting, so to speak, to an all-out <laughs> brawl in the Harlem bar. You know, everybody that was involved was getting a little nervous, like, what, what 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 do you mean? We didn't think we were going to battle. Yeah. We didn't think we were going to compete. You know, now the pressure's on. So the week of the show arrives, and the Americans get on a plane to Paris. And according to Robin, like, these models were, like, living it up. I mean, on the plane, they're, like, you know, smoking a little bit of weed, just trying to take the edge off. Yeah. And for a lot of the models... Like, this was their first time, you know, going to Europe or leaving the country. I mean, like, this was exciting. I mean, just imagine, you know, you're pulling up to the gates of, like, you know, one of the most beautiful, ostentatious, most famous European royal palaces. We were in a cold castle. There was no heat. And the design is sure fit, and they had to bring food in and toilet paper. There was there was not even toilet paper for the girls in the bathroom. So right off the bat, there's a lot of drama. You know, the French, they were kind of running around the theater, and they were rehearsing with all of these different set pieces and costume changes, you know, and they ended up not leaving any time for the Americans to rehearse. So the American choreographer barely had any time to work with any of the models. So Stephen and a few other designers were actually forced to just, like, make up some last-minute choreography. Off the dome. Right, off the dome. (laughs) And to top it all off, there was a problem with the scenery. The American set designer totally screwed up. The set that he built didn't fit because he measured it in feet instead of meters. Fucking metric system, Exactly. And so the French people were looking at them, and they were like, y'all, 
suck. They were very critical of us during the week. Like, what are they doing? They didn't do very much. We uh-huh. hadn't done anything like scenery like they had. Did they say these things to you guys or did you just kind of yes, hear whispers? they did. That's rude. <laughs> That's it's not... rude, but it's very French. So things are getting pretty tense at this point. But they could see my, you know, my calm. And they were counting. They kept saying they were counting me, which puts more pressure. I knew that what we had was good for all I knew. Mm -hmm. But you don't know what the other guy has, but you know that whatever they've always had has always been brilliant. It's not looking good at this point. (laughs) It's not looking good. All right, so Team America has no set, no moves, and no time whatsoever to impress a bunch of stuffy French people. How in the hell are they going to pull this off? You will find out right after the break. Okay, so to set the scene, it's November 28th, 1973. It's the evening of the Americans' big debut. It was actually quite a sort of romantic and dramatic night um, because there was this very light snowfall. And as our fashion expert, Robin Gavon, was telling me, all these lavishly dressed, high society guests are like basically just gliding into this beautiful theater. The pathway leading through the courtyard and, and to the theater, I mean, it was lined with these men wearing sort of the full livery of the, you know, the red jackets and the powdered wigs. All the women were wearing designer gowns from people like Madame Grey and Saint Laurent, and there were incredible jewels that a lot of these women, you know, had pulled out of the vault. Some of them were wearing tiaras. I mean, they really pulled out the stops. So in the audience, you've got a ton of European superstars, like the Princess of Monaco, you know, like Princess Grace, like she was there. But then it's time for the show to start. So the curtains open and the French are up first. And they've got like a live orchestra and like really elaborate sets. It all starts with this Cinderella theme and there's this giant pumpkin carriage on stage. They had performance after performance after performance after performance. I thought they were going to shoot somebody out of a cannon after a while. (laughs) It was so much going on. We were like, whoa. It was kind of like a Broadway show, like very over the top. And even though the show itself was over the top, like the models were a little more subtle. Like they were kind of more like statues in motion, just like showcasing the clothes instead of like characters. I mean, and they had this show planned out to a T, like... They had Josephine Baker come out and sing this song about how much she loved France and France was her country forever. That's shade because Josephine Baker is actually American. Yes. Like, that's a little dig. Even I, I see that. I thought it was shady, too. So that was their big closer. The whole show overall lasted for almost two hours. And there was an intermission 
the sort of blissfully boozy intermission, which had them close to, you know, midnight practically. And then it was the Americans' turn to perform. So the Americans, they didn't have a live orchestra. Their music was on tape, and it was all real to real. Once you turned it on, that was it. And so there were built-in pauses to account for when one designer's show would end and the next designer's presentation would begin. But if anything was off, you know, if models failed to walk out at precisely the right moment, you could end up with everything kind of going awry. So one of the other American designers goes first, and thankfully, none of her models messed up the music cues. And then it was Steven's turn. What did you tell them in terms of how to walk, like how to move down the runway? Uh, I didn't have to tell them anything. <laughs> they knew <laughs> that's why they were there, because of the way they walked. How did they walk? Oh, strong, confident, sexy, having fun, smiling. You just would send out girls one by one, and then all the girls walk forward to the stage front and start voguing. Of course, we didn't call it voguing then. It was just posing. Lift your arms and throw your hip out. It's just showing off in front of a group of people. So Steven's models are wearing his signature bright body-hugging clothes. And they were twirling and voguing and posing and jutting out their hips. I mean, it could have been the club. And one of the last models out was Beth Ann Hardison. This is the Brooklyn girl, the tap dancer, the street fighter. And she is wearing this, like, gorgeous, like, sun-yellow gown. Like, it reaches down to the floor, and it extends, like, way, way back. It has this long, long train. And it's not like, you know, Stephen's usual jersey fabric. Like, this is, like, silk and it's woven. Like, it kind of has this, like, a couture feel, but, like, it's something completely new. She was ready to make a grand entrance. Unlike the classical music that the French used, the Americans made the decision to, like, bring in regular people music, like the music of the moment, like stuff you'd hear at the club. Songs like the Creative Source cover of the famous Bill Withers song, Who is he and what is he to you? And I came down, coming down fierce. I came down to win. I came down to, to let them know that we were here. And I, I mean, in every step I took, I, I rumbled. I could hear a drum, the beat of the, it was almost like I could hear percussion in the music. And I used that percussion that way I walked. I could hear the melody now in my head, you know, and walking to it. In Stephen's presentation, we are, all our dresses were done with trains. And he had a pinky holder where we had it on our fingers when we walked. And by the time I got to the end of the stage, I threw mine down and stared at the audience until I wouldn't move until they felt the experience. I was shaking. Tears were in my eyes when I stood there, but I knew the purpose. What 
at first I thought something went wrong, but then it turned out it was applause. It was, they were completely freaked out. And that's when they started to stomp their feet and, you know, bravo, bravo, bravo. And then they said, get Steven, get Steven. And Steven comes running over and I'm staring the crowd down. And it was, it was quite something. The French using so uptight. Uh, it was wild. We didn't think anything that could happen after that that would be as great as that moment. And believe me, we knew that we then had not come to fail. We had come to win, and we, we, we were winning. The French show took two hours. Our show took 37 minutes, and we killed them. Josephine Baker found Beth Ann Hardison, and she was like, I want to come backstage and meet the girls. Beth, you have to take me back. You have to take me backstage. <laughs> and I took her backstage to meet the girls. And of course, the girls died. They were so inspired that they met Joe Baker. And Josephine was saying, oh, my God, this is I'm so proud of everyone. Because she's originally American mm-hmm. and of color. And to see these girls do what they did and how, how they were showcased, it meant everything. So the Americans, they've won back Josephine Baker, and they've shown the French that they're not just copycats, that, you know, they actually have something original to bring to the table. How did you feel after the show? Triumphant. Because Saint Laurent told me I made beautiful clothes. What did that mean to you, Yves Saint Laurent telling you that you made beautiful clothes? It made my trip. (laughs) So... If you're thinking about it like a battle, then it seems like the Americans won. So, like, what did you notice as far as immediate responses? Like, how was it talked about in the media? It wasn't. There may have been a little blurb in uh, women's wear, the society page, but um, that's about as far as it went. It was a great thing that we went over and did it and then we came back they said yay yay right on clap clap and then you went back to your job damn yeah that's rough man it is rough but slowly like in the months after that all of a sudden these black models start working were in, yes. in france or in, a- in europe they had never seen so many black girls in one place at same time performing, and especially in the fashion show. There were a lot of girls who became like a muses for European designers, like Givenchy. Yeah. After he saw those girls at the Versailles show, he like started booking them for his shows. He had an entire like group. They called it a cabine. Mm-hmm. His whole cabine was like black girls. Yeah, because they had the sauce. Because they had the sauce. So like they started getting work. And then after that, you know, you have models like Iman. I know I'm on. Yeah. Yes, Beverly Johnson, mm. Naomi Campbell, Veronica Webb. And Beth Ann, like, she got a lot more work after the Battle of Versailles. The model of color was recognized in a proper way. So there's a lot that happened from that show that was more than, you know, just going and winning and walking away. And that's deep considering, like, not many people actually knew that this thing happened. Exactly. But the thing is, you know, that bump in popularity... It only lasted until, like, the mid-90s. See, like, fashion is all about trends. And for a while, black models were, like, all the rage. 
But then, you know, in the 90s, the Eastern European look starts to become more popular. And, like, heroin chic, which is basically just a lot of skinny white people. And they they openly called it heroin chic? It was called heroin chic, yeah. Mm, Questionable. Yeah, that became, like, the trendy thing. And, like, the black cool look, it kind of fell out of style. Wait, so what, like, but what happened to Stephen Burroughs? So, Stephen Burroughs... You know, he's still designing now, but the height of his career, like, pretty much happened in the 70s. That kind of sucks. He seemed like he he was on track to be, like, the man. Yeah. I mean, the thing that that really gets me is, like, this show, like, The Battle of Versailles, like, it it was huge, you know? So you would think that, like a whole bunch of other black designers would come up after him. Do you know what I mean? And also be able to make it really big. But, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, there are quite a few black designers that are, you know, making high fashion and doing really amazing things. But, like, there aren't as many as I think that there should be that have really big careers. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no there's no one having, like, that Battle of Versailles moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no chitlins at Bergdorf's. Yeah, and that's a travesty. <laughs> I'm serious. The 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 version of the fashion industry that existed in the like 60s and 70s as you described it sounds really fucking cool. You know, it, it's it's rare to it's rare to be able to look to like look far in the past and like long for the opportunities <laughs> of your as a black person. Yeah. That's not really that's not really our birthright. Yeah. But black people had it had it halfway decent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And and uh I find myself in a very peculiar position as a black person of wishing for the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or wishing for some of the sweetness of the past. And that is it's weird. Yeah. I agree. I wanna go back to that. And I wanna go back to chitlins and jazz bands. Maybe we should bring some to Burgers. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I thought this was... This, this, is, where, this is where it's supposed to be. Do you know be. your history? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you a little story. Okay, that's The Nod with Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings. For full credits, check out their website, gimletmedia.com slash The Nod. They have more episodes in their feed, so go listen and subscribe. And Startup will be back with a new episode next week.